0: one and welcome to a very special episode of death sentence this is Eden speaking and this episode is special because I want to use it to kick off a new series of solo episodes I also have other topics for solo episodes one that I still owe you about Michael Moorcock and where I think you should or how I think you should read the eternal champion books haven't forgotten about that and I have a few more ideas that I'm kicking around So this series might not be sequential and I might pause it and continue it, Um, but still I want to launch it as a series that will hopefully um, be with us for a long time. The idea with this series is to explore a form or medium, one might even say, of writing that I have not only not talked about um, a lot on the podcast, but was only recently made aware that it existed, or rather I always knew it existed, but not to this extent, which is the science fiction and fantasy poem. Apparently, there is not only a lot of these poems, but there's also an award that is granted to such um, works every year called the Riesling Award, Risling is the name of the blind poet in Robert Heinlein's short story The Green, Heels, the Green Hills sorry, of Earth, which I have conflicting emotions on as anything with Heinlein. Um, and this award is given to two works every year, one for Best Long Poem, which is defined as works with 50 or more lines, and one for Best Short Poem, which is 49 of your lines, unsurprisingly. Apparently, this is part of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, which I also was not aware existed, and I want to use this series to basically read uh, works that received the award, whether short or long, and then do episodes about them, uh, like we do in Death Sentence. Funnily enough, the first two works that I am going to focus on today were not uh, given this award one because it was published before the award started um, and one because I don't know maybe because it won the Arthur C. Clarke award or just wasn't um, in consideration or or didn't end up winning the award Um, but they are two works that kind of um, made me dive into the world of science fiction poetry. By the way some of these Solo episodes will have more than one work because poems are shorter than novels, obviously. And sometimes I'll also want to contrast between um, poems. Um, so I'm going to wing it and see you know, what comes to mind um, every time I come to record one of these. And I also fully expect these episodes to be a bit shorter, which, to be honest, is nice. Our episodes usually run over an hour. And while I've been doing solo episodes... Um, that ran 45 minutes or so, I think it could be interesting to explore even uh, shorter runtimes. Although this one might be a bit longer because the two works that we're uh, going to be covering are pretty complicated. Okay, so what are these two works? Well, if you've been listening to the past Death Sentence episodes, you could probably guess both of them because I've referred to them several times. But the main one is Harry Martinson's Anyara. I think I've already introduced this work on a podcast before, but in case I didn't, Harry Martinson was and still is one of the most important Swedish writers in modern times. Um, He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1974, which sadly um, ended with him taking his own life because of uh, rumors and suspicions of corruption around the um, uh, uh, him receiving this award. But beyond that, he was a writer, a poet, he was even a sailor. He was involved in um, anarchist politics and in general, he, he has been called the great reformer of 20th century Swedish poetry. He was a part of um, a group of um, writers um, w- who were very important for Swedish modernism. He actually authored the anthology fem unga five youths in which these poets um were uh published, and their work was characterized by uh humanism, very flowery and metaphorical language, um, and other you know, I'm not an expert in this movement or in Swedish uh literature uh altogether, but uh, it's important for us to understand that this is not fringe, right? Um Martinson is a very important figure in the history of Swedish literature. He wrote Aniara, uh, which is a space opera in more than one way because while the book was published in 1956, it became an actual opera in 1959, uh, which was composed by Karl Blumdahl, who is a Swedish composer and conductor. Um, the... The work itself is what's described as a poetic cycle. We can also think a bit of it as an epic poem in the tradition of epic poetry, and it shares a lot of um, distinguishing characteristics with epic poetry, which we might get to um, in this uh, episode. And briefly, Aniara tells the um, story of a ship called Aniara traveling from Earth to mars escaping some sort of calamity which by the way happens in the far future of um earth we'll talk about that um when because of an accident it loses control of its direction and is now drifting forever into space it follows the people on it as they dispel and fall apart and form cults and try to handle the vast emptiness of Space. Also famously, Anyara was made into an excellent movie, um, which was released a few years ago, which does really good work in capturing um the despair, but also the kind of um hope and uh ideas about emotion handling others handling ourselves memory and so on that run through ania the film was published or released sorry in 2018 and we've spoken about it on the cast several times i also covered it on one of my other podcasts anarchy sf so if you want to dive deeper into that you can go ahead and listen to that but i very much recommend you watch it but do so with company. I watched it alone and it was a big mistake because it's a very depressing film and and the poem is also uh, very depressing and in more ways than one, more depressing. Uh, by the way, uh, I mentioned this last time we spoke about Aniara, but Aniara is kind of, um, or rather after it we can detect a sort of palimpsest in the work of um, science fiction because it influenced um, Tau Zero by Paul Anderson, The Birthday of the World by Ursula Le Guin, fire upon the deep by Werner vinge and many other work uh, uh, authors and works of art so this is again might not be um very well known and by the way the translations are out of print except for one the bad translation from the 60s there's a better one from the 90s which you can buy for 800 dollars online if you if you so like um but but this work had a lot of influence both in sweden and elsewhere The other work that we want to discuss today and that we want to contrast with Anyara is Deep Wheel Orcadia by Harry Josephine Giles. Giles is an author from Orkney. In case you don't know, Orkney is um, a group of northern islands um, in the north of Scotland where a form of Scots which is one of the middle tongues of of Scotland, um, called Orcadian, is still spoken. Now, I'm not a linguist by any uh, sense of the world, and there's a lot of argument about um, whether Orcadian is a dialect, a dialect, sorry, or a language. And, and in fact, like the definition of a dialect versus a language is something that is very uh, much in contention. But for us, it's it's important to know that Orkney or Orcadian. Was influenced by English, of course, but also by Norwegian, has a lot of loanwords from Scandinavian tongues. Um, In general, it's, uh, and Gaelic, of course. Um, And it's kind of um, like an uncanny sister or sibling to English, right? If you're an English reader, you can pick up Deep Wheel Arcadia and just read it. Um, However, it's hard. Uh, Because the the spellings, the diphthongs, and of course some of the words are not in English, but they're in Orcadian. So the book has what's called um, a foot translation, right? The translation into English appears at the bottom of the page below the actual poem. Deep Wheel Orcadia tells the story of um, two characters. One is coming back home. uh, So she is from Deep Wheel. Orcadia, which is a space station um, that deals in the mining and the distribution of lights, which is a form of fuel. That character's name is Astrid, which, by the way, has echoes, of course, of Orkney and Scandinavian naming traditions. Um, And the other character, supposedly her name is Darling. That's a pseudonym. um, And she is the daughter of rich um, Martians. And she's kind of you know, you could almost think of it like an extended tool, like rich uh, people used to do in the 19th century, except like many of those rich people, Darling is overcome by wanderlust, which um, makes her, you know, travel the uh, not just the solar system, but also the galaxy, right? As humanity has expanded um, beyond um, our solar system. Now, the obvious comparison between the works is, is the influence of Scandinavian language, uh, metaphorical uh, language, so not just verbal language right, or written language, but also metaphorical language, uh, imagery, and so on. But they have two very different approaches to this sort of Scandinavian heritage. For Martinson, he was writing, I would say, within Swedish culture. He was not an outsider or he was not making a work which was inherently Swedish, right? The Swedish culture and language for him was, to borrow from David Foster Wallace, like water, right? He couldn't see it because he was swimming within it. So there's nothing explicitly Swedish about Aniara, While for Giles, they are writing an explicitly orkney work right a because they chose a language which is not quote-unquote a common tongue right swedish is spoken by millions of people while orcadian um, is not i mean even scots which is a much larger language dialect is is not spoken by millions of people um, and in fact as time goes by of course less and less people speak these local languages and more revert to lingua francas like english spanish Chinese in in other parts of the world and so on Um, and the name of the work is Deep Wheel Orcadia right so Giles are inherently are inherently um, writing about you know something which is Orkney so from the get-go their position in regards to the heritage from which they are drawing is completely different which results in a very different uh, poem right so that's the first point of, of contrast that you could draw between the books. But what is interesting in its common ground, but it's also its differences, is the usage which both authors make to describe common topics, and chief amongst them is space itself. If you think about it, poems about deep space, which both these works are, right? Aniara is about a ship floating through deep space, and um, Deep Will O'Cadia is about a space station in deep space, they both have to reckon with ideas of home, strangeness, voyages, blankness, coldness, belonging, family, and so on. It's It's baked into the theme that both of these books have decided to tackle, right? In many ways... Using language is a very effective way to convey a lot of these positions and emotions, and even more so, to use poetry. We've spoken about this on the podcast before. Poetry, by being a distilled version of verbal and written expression, has a way to it that Prose does not. And if it sounds like I'm twisting myself into knots in order to describe it, that's because I am. The power of poetry is exactly that ability to express the inexpressible, right? A metaphor, a good metaphor in poetry doesn't say things which we already know. It says things which we know, but find it hard to articulate outside of poetry, it tries to tie connections between worlds which are non-obvious, one, and two, open us up to new ways of thinking about things, or three, articulate things that we always felt like we knew but could never formulate for ourselves. And, and what better theme to hold these complexities of perception and language than space, Right? We We haven't gone to space yet. I mean, 99.9% probably add like five more nines haven't gone into space. We haven't gone there in a meaningful way as a society, as a species. And so we haven't yet, or we've only just begun to develop the language necessary to describe all of the emotions that space um, creates in us, which is another unique uh, characteristic of space. It's everywhere, right? Even though we haven't gone though, civilizations and cultures and languages from the beginning of recorded uh, human history have come into relationship with space, right? Because all you need to do is stand outside of your window and look up. Uh, and of course, space and the stars and the moon and so on have inspired millennia of, of, of poetry. But ever since... The idea of science fiction, which again is very hard to situate, but we could put it in the 17th century, the idea of space as a realm to explore, as a place to go, um, started to arise. And therefore, the language being used about space, which, by the way, side note, open parentheses, has a lot to do with the language being used in the exploration of the quote unquote new world, and therefore colonialism and extractivism. Those languages became tied together. Um, But in any case, a language, a dictionary, a lexicon, a metaphorical space, a semiotic field began to arise um, of speaking about and thinking of space as a place to go, the challenges that might arise, the distance, the homesickness, and so on. And if we were to write a thesis about this or do a five-hour long podcast, we could analyze Um, works of poetry, all the way from the 17th century, which which explore these concepts. Um, But promise me, we don't have the time there. So this is kind of the tradition or the tensions that both Deep Wheel Arcadia and Anyara um, swim in. And they both have very different approaches to what to do with these spaces. So let's start with Anyara. Anyara does many, many things. And it's, a, by the way, both of these works are very good. I wouldn't be covering them otherwise. And Niara other is one of the most exceptional uh, pieces of long-form poetry that I've read. It is so, so good. It's really hard to stress how good it is. Um, and if, by the way, it's hard to find. So if you want to read Niara an and you're listening to this, please email me and I will send you a PDF. Because um, again, it's just out of print and very hard to find in, in digital format as well. But it really is a, a fantastic uh, work of art. One of the main things that it does is, which is a common science fiction trick, is confound us with technical terms. and And let me give you an example of of such a, a confounding um, move from the book. By the way, I want to give proper credit to the translations. Um, so, I everything I am reading is from i'm i'm trying to find the exact um the exact details and I'm only finding like martinson's details anyway I'll leave it in the description of which translation exactly i'm using I'm using the nineteen ninety nine um translation again I'll leave like the full details um in the description so that I give proper credit I am not reading from the I think 59 or 60 something translation, which I have. By the way, you can buy that, but I find it um, inferior. Like, it's not good. Um, so, that's where um, my translation comes from. Give me one sec. I'll, I'll try to keep looking for the info. Okay, I'll put it in the description. It doesn't really matter right now. So, I'm reading from um, this translation, and th- this is one of the first passages where the uh, embarkment onto Aniara on Earth is described. Goldonder-Aniara shuts. The siren gives the whale for field aggression by the known routine, and then the gyrospinner sets in towing the Goldunder upward to the zenith light, where magnetrinos blocking field intensity soon signal level zero and field release occurs. The book has a lot more of these passages, especially when describing Mima. If you've watched the movie, you'd know that Mima is an AI, a computer of some sort. By the way, this book was prescient in many ways, which recreates um, images from other worlds, but also from Earth in order to alleviate the stress of space travel. If you're not an a and you're just doing the usual hop to Mars, which takes a few weeks, if I remember correctly, if everything goes right, then, yeah, you might get depressed a bit, right, because you miss oh for maybe it's a few months. Um, then you go to Mima and she shows you images of the good life and that holds you over until Mars. We'll talk about that in a second because there's like an aspect of, you know, opium for the masses in here. Um, but whatever Mima is described, again, these um, terms come up Um, And I'll read you another passage where Martinson describes Aniara. And her electron works haul in, electro lenses give her screener cells their coded programs, and the focus works collect the taxis of the third indifferent web, and sounds and scents and pictures emanate out of lavish fluxes. So, So beyond, before we get to what Martinson is doing here, is just really good, right? I, I really like the third indifferent web. The third indifferent web comes up many times, and by the way, is also the beginning of the end for Mima, who eventually just explodes from the sheer grief um, of of handling the the memories and and the, and the sorrows of the crew, and also seeing how doomed and foolish humanity is. And and the beginning of the end is this in, in this third indifferent web, which is kind of like a mechanism of its um, artificial intelligence. But the reason that, that Martinson um, uses these inventions here, you could say, oh, silly science fiction authors, right, like inventing uh, gizmos or whatever. But it's really not what's happening here. What Martinson is trying to do is convey to us the, well, a few things. One, the inaccessibility of the MIMA, of the technology, to the people using it, right? and. The main character for which most of the poem is is told is a mimarob, uh, a technician slash priest of the Mima who is completely useless, right They cannot fix the mima. the Mima is more advanced than them it, It's said many times in the book that the Mima is more advanced than the mimarob. um It is used to convey this um loss as in loss of 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 orientation and senselessness. Um, which typifies the relationship of these people, these passengers of the ship, with the technology that surrounds them, right? Which, of course, in turn, and this is the second point, is meant to convey to us our senselessness and our inaccessibility of the systems that we're using. Martinson, it's important to remember, uh, was married to an anarchist, visited the Soviet Union, wrote about proletarian um, concerns, and in general was sort of uh, uh, sympathetic or, or uh, uh, emphasized with the common man, right? And, and, and day to day. And and in many ways, Aniara is a work of um, ludicism, And again, remember, the Luddites were correct and they were good. And no matter what you're told, right? They were fighting for... Um, the rights of workers facing redundancy over automation sounds familiar. It should be because the struggle against AI is the struggle against automation, which working people have been involved in for more than I mean, 300 years, only in the modern era and much earlier than that. And in many ways, Anyara is a is a is a wake up call or, or a warning cry of where this technology is taking us. Don't forget, the doom of Anyara begins because of a glitch. It's not sabotage. It's not, um, I don't know, political indecision or strife. It is simply the malfunctioning of technology. Martinson very cleverly uses the weirdness of language to convey this distance, right? This um, inaccessibility of the technology being used <clears throat> the other thing that martinson does and he does not with world choice but with the format of poetry is exactly what i um, intimated in the beginning which is the distance weirdness um odd reality of space um He does this in many ways. First, he just does it for his excellence in in language, right? By describing the the vast um, size of space versus the smallness of Anyara. And I'll read you one passage where he does that. Thus, given over to the shock stiff void, we spread the call sign Anyara wide in glass-clear boundlessness, but picked up nothing. Though space vibrations faithfully bore round our proud Aniara's last communique on widening rings, in spheres and copulas it moved through empty spaces thrown away. In anguish sent by us in Aniara, our call sign faded till it failed. Aniara. So I really love that last doublet, um, where Anyara as a call sign, right, rings out, um, and you kind of get that feeling of the echo, right, of the vibration of the signal. Think of like a ping or a sonar note echoing through this vast space and then coming back completely empty um, to Aniara. And Martinson keeps using this all through the poem, using Aniara as, as a call sign, Um and and using that as kind of like that echo in the um, blankness of space. Now, another thing which you might have noticed in that passage is that he uses glass. And he does this um, more and more um, along the poem using um, this idea of uh, glass or uh, crystal. And he uses that metaphor in a very interesting way to also shift the perspective on space into a spiritual perspective. So let me read you one of the best passages um, in the poem, which introduces or uh, develops this idea of crystal, and then another one right after it, um, which does that kind of like um, a spiritual move. Everything looks as if solidified, and frozen to the Mount of Everlasting, like grains of diamond in a crystal sheath, encompassing the very boundlessness in a massive radiant hall of utter distance. But all the words that have been used to death, misused on mountains and on tracts of water, and landscapes where they never did belong, were drawn on in advances by a race, with no thought that the words which they were wearing down might at some future date be sorely needed, right where they suited best, right here on board this spaceship on its way out to the Lyre. The Lyre, by the way, is the constellation towards which Anya is floating. So so you see what's happening here. He moves from this mythological form at the Mount of Everlasting. And by the way, the entire book is replete with references to Hades and Um, the stars and uh, life everlasting and so on he moves from that mode immediately into like an arse poetic mode which is exactly what we described the use of words to describe space this is as close as you get to a mission statement in ania right where martinson is saying all those words that we used to write poems uh, about mountains with we should have actually been keeping to describe Space, which is a really interesting um, idea. The advances in, in, in particular, I really like. This idea that we're in our ears, we, we have debt of our worlds to the coming experience of space, which is a really interesting concept. And he takes it one step further, as I said, um, by doing this kind of spiritual twist. I'm going to read to you my absolute favorite passage from the poem, and we're going to end there. And to be clear, we could have done an entire episode just on a it's quite long. We could have read through it, and there's a lot in here. Um, again, I, I mentioned myth, but there's a lot in here about carnality and the body and sex and birth and hierarchies and anarchy and, and much more besides. But I want to keep this episode contained. So um, read Aniara. It's very interesting. Um, but let's, let's read this. Um, this passage is longer, so bear with me. Um, and it is absolutely phenomenal. We're slowly coming to suspect that the space we're traveling through is of a different kind from what we thought whenever the word space was decked out by our fantasies on Earth. We're coming to suspect now that our drift is even deeper than we first believed, that knowledge is a blue naivete which, with the insight needful to the purpose, assumed the mystery to have a structure. We now suspect that what we say is space and glassy clear around Aniara's hull is spirit, everlasting and impalpable, that we are lost in spiritual seas. Our spaceship Aniara travels on in something that does not possess a brain pan and does not even need the stuff of brains. She's traveling on in something that exists but does not need to take the path of thought through God and death and mystery we race, on spaceship Aniara without goal or trace. Oh, would that we can turn back to our base, now that we realize what our spaceship is, a little bubble in the glass of Godhead. I shall relate what I have heard of glass and then you'll understand. In any glass that stands untouched for a sufficient time, Gradually a bubble in the glass will move infinitely slowly to a different point in the glazing form, and in a thousand years the bubbles made a voyage in its glass. Similarly, in a boundless space a gulf a gulf the depth of light years throws its arch round bubble Aniara on her march, for though the rate she travels at is great and much more rapid than the swiftest planet, her speed is measured by the scale of space exactly corresponds to that we know the bubble makes inside this bowl of glass. Chilled at such certitude, I take flight, out of the Mima Hall to the ruddy light, filling the dance hall and, finding Daisy there, I seek admission to her womb of hair, in her savor arms I beg a trist, where death's cold certitude does not exist. There's where life remains in Mima's room. The Doric valleys live in Daisy's womb. As in ourselves, no cold or threat to hound us. We lose track of the spaces that surround us. Extremely good. And it really boils down this game that Martinson performs on spiritualism, space, the body, and so on. And all with this sly cynicism that... uh, makes it clear to us that these are the illusions and deceptions of a people simply doomed to death in a very, you know, uh, not day-to-day, of course, because they're on a spaceship in the middle of space, but in a very mechanical way. Um, But they delude themselves with these flights of fancy. And yet the language is so beautiful and really gets across the meaninglessness of how we feel in the face of space. Okay, so that concludes our discussion of Aniara. although, of course, we we could talk hours and hours just about this uh, work. The other work, as a reminder, is Deep Wheel Orcadia. And in the case of Deep Wheel Orcadia, I am reading from what I think is the only version to be published yet. I, I hope um, it gets uh, repressed many, many times, which was released in 2021. By the way, it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2022. Um, and here the themes are very different because this is not people who deep wheel arcadia itself is not lost right the vessel is not lost the station is where the station has always been and very importantly it is on the frontier but it's not a new frontier right this is not a colony or a new settlement. This is a place that's been around for a long time, and as such, it is now seeing change. That is, it had a norm, it had a routine, it had a purpose, and now that purpose is um, changing. And I'm actually going to start by approaching the same uh, topic that we uh, first spoke about with Anyara, which is the use of language to describe technology. Now, I'm not going to read from the Orcadian because I am pretty sure that I have no idea how to pronounce it. Um, But in some uh, passages, you know what? I I will read from the Orcadian, okay? And you will just forgive my uh, mangling of the language. Not that I suspect that anyone here speaks Orcadian, but if the author or anybody else that speaks Scots or Orcadian is listening and I butcher the pronunciation, I uh, apologize. And um, well... Uh, relevant. I w- we will also talk about the English um, translation. So this is a very interesting passage where uh, two characters, um, Olaf, who is a lighter, uh, that is, they collect the lights, the fuel that the uh, station processes, and Einar, who manages the hus, I assume you pronounce it, which is kind of like a, a public house, right? like a bar and a meeting ground and a restaurant um, and a communal center, all, all in one. Um, they, they're speaking about a new technology. And uh, this is how it goes. Which way does Hid work? Asks Einar. Pora Nabir I'm no sure, says Olaf. But Yin archaeologists can, ach, what's her name, tilt Hid like this. The jimpet Yolman takes two glasses and a pack of nuts and steers the subtle engines through the warp of time, no rings or spirit on the binkled aluminum bar. The drive makes a pock, see, or hyperspace, tie wind through, tie exceed relativistic constraints. Yeah, but, says Einar, I thought he'd wish more ontological restrictions as technological limits. Which way if they avoid an catastrophic temporal paradox a eh? so beyond just the funny uh parts where the Arcadian mixes with the english terms that are just technical terms which were reproduced you see um what's happening here we are confused because we're reading a language we don't know and by the way if you can follow that they're sitting at the table and um they're talking about this new technology of hyperspace drive and um one of them, Olaf, uh, takes two glasses and with the fluid and the nuts kind of describes how the jump happens. Uh, well, Einar responds and says, yeah, but I thought the problem was like time paradoxes, right? Because they're jumping um, time and space and so on. So we're confused because we're reading a language that is uh, foreign to us, but the characters are confused because they're thinking of Um, topics which are foreign to them they also have no idea how the hyperspace drive actually works of course it's not like glasses with water and nuts and kind of like how you skip between them right that's not um how it works and and the the this passage ends by the way with them um you know saying you know it's bad enough to lose the last ray that we had now we're losing um even more and Whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. We don't know how the drive works, but what matters is the impact that it has on our lives. So, again, language here is used to convey levels of confusion and levels of distance from understanding. But here, differently from Aniara, the um, language of technology is also used to convey familiarity and skill and a deep embeddedness within the um, within the prelocadia and its existence this time I'm going to read the English um, just so that we can get some uh, contrast and then we'll also talk about some of the um, choices for translation maybe I'll, I'll I'll talk about that before so that you understand um, what it works there's a uh, a poet uh, called uh, Rodi Gorman, who is an Irish-born um, poet who, who also um, writes and deals with Scottish um, Gaelic, and he uses um, a form of translation called, let me find the um, exact uh, professional term, again I'm not a, a linguist by any measure of the term, um, where is it? Combined a combinatory translation. So this is a very interesting technique where each word has what's called a semiotic field, right? Which is all of the associations and the the subjects which the word conveys. When you translate, you need to make choices. When you're translating um, in the, what's the word I'm looking for? Traditional sense, right? If a word means both um, lock and, And whole, for example, you'll need to choose one of these words, and that is part of the art of translation. But what if instead we took all of the main words in this field and printed them all together so that we kind of, instead of choosing, we translated the word into its field, essentially trying to convey what a native speaker of the language would understand from the word, right? Because the native speaker understands both lock and hole in my sort of contrived example, right? Um, Feline, for example, is a good example. You think of a cat, like an actual cat, but as a speaker of English, you also get the sense of agility, stealth, predatory instinct, uh, maybe um, sloth, right? And and, uh, um, hedonistic kind of uh, outlook on life. All of these things are untranslatable. What if we took all those words and instead of saying feline, we said predatory, angular, cat-like, right? And this is what um Giles has chosen to do in Deepwood Wheel So I'm reading um a passage about um Higgy, who is an older uh Kodo. And this is also one of my favorite passages um in the book. And the Arcadian is beautiful, it's just a lot, so I'm not gonna do it, but you you're not gonna read it, but you can go and read it. It's on page um sixteen. They're older now, and only Higgy Wait they lived to be an elder. Dagmar made a family on Wolf. Carrie took a Martian job in food meat. Torsten died, and none of them ever speak about it. Higgy, back bend cramp twisting more with every year, delved with code and solder into machines, missing the noise gossip, thinking in code program scripture and circuit. She monitors. Here at the plant, by screen, and after in the back pew of the kirk. She makes little adjustments. Who sits well, what words are needed, when to apply comfort, and when to chide or speak a truth. She is not alone. She knows she does not sing in tune, but at the plant and with her screen, she sings. such a contrast, right? Where here technology, the screens, the monitoring, the code is used to feel like you belong, even though you might not belong. And you saw that combinatory translation practice, right? And how it tries to get across the color of the words being used. So code program uh, script, for example, uh, code program scripture in um, Orcadian is just the word script, right? And um, bend, cramp, twisting is cropenin which is a wonderful word. And, and it, it sounds like English, right? Because the language is evolved from Anglic um, roots or with Anglic influences, um, but of course was influenced by other dialects and tongues and so on, um, and uh, therefore is kind of um, different. Of course, technology is not the only thing described in um, Deep Wheel Acadia. In fact, many of the descriptions are of longing, and of missing something and not being able to find it. There is a fantastic passage when Astrid, who is a painter, you remember uh, she comes back to Arcadia and instead of being a worker like her parents, she wants to um, paint and she comes back to Arcadia for inspirations from home. There's a beautiful passage where she tries to paint Arcadia um, and fails. And this time I want to read um, the Orcadian because it is simply very, very beautiful. Um, So she is trying to sketch Orcadia and she works with um, the colors. And uh, um, yeah, let's, let's get into it. Black lines for the stars, blue dubs for the tides. Green arcs for the grand scale of wheels and arms and bolas gathered round central. Minden her lessons, Phi College. She follows sense in Thai shape and shape in Thai color and knew she's closer. tie the grace utbai, but closer makes mo- Max more of a rainy. So that last one is, but closer makes more of a writhing pain. Right, so closer is more painful. Closer is more squeamish, writhing, right? Contorting. By the way, I'm sure I butcher that entire pronunciation because it has all those diphthongs. It's like a very diphthong heavy um, stanza. But of course, you'll you'll forgive me. And and elsewhere, more emotions like um, homesickness and um, love and affection, but also a kind of affection which is hesitant, right? Of someone who's been gone a long time and comes back home. All these ideas are described with this sort of combinatory translation, which does a very interesting job of exactly what I um, alluded to in the beginning, of poetry's ability to capture these semiotic fields, right? To capture these um, clouds, of meaning and intent behind words, like the word "feline, right imagine that it's surrounded by this cloud, so when I write a poem about a cat, I'm not just talking about a cat, I'm infusing it with all these meanings of 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 a cat and and how we use it in language, and then I can use the feline theme to do sorts all sorts of interesting things. I'd suddenly contrast it with a sword or a planet or something else to to make you go, huh. I never thought of cats that way. I never thought of agility that way. I never thought of predators that way, right? And that is the power of poetry. And the combinatory translation surfaces it um, so that we can feel and see and read the intricacies of these words and these choices. So we almost get a glimpse into the author's choice as a native speaker of the tongue right? Because when they write the poem, when they wrote the poem, yeah, maybe they actually did think about it because they needed to then translate it into these forms. But when you write a poem in your native tongue, you're not necessarily breaking all these semiotic fields. You're just using language as a native speaker, but also not because you're a poet, right? So you're doing things that aren't just native, aren't just obvious, aren't just day-to-day. You're infusing your words with these semiotic fields in these comparisons but also it is in a way which is below the surface right you ask a lot of poets and they they say i don't know where this came from i don't know where this figure of speech came to me from it came from to me from the depths of language from the depths of of my own mind which is why poetry is so powerful and the combinatory translation technique chosen by the author here and taken from um the, the the po the poet that we um, referenced in the beginning um, whose name is Rodi Goldman just so we give uh, uh, credit where credit is due is a very interesting method to explore um, poetry in okay so two very interesting examples for what long form poetry can do. We didn't spend a lot of time on the science fiction-ness of both poems. I think on the other, they're both very science fiction, right? Like one of them is about a ship lost in space and the other one is about a space station. Um, and we kind of touched on it when we, t- we talked about space and technology and so on. But it's also interesting to note that a lot of these themes that these works tackle are common in science fiction, like um, missing home, finding home in the stars um continuing to travel and so on um and that's what's so interesting to me that they offer new approaches to common science fiction themes and that's what i want to explore with this um series by the way the next solo episode will be about ursula Le Guin's the well of bane which was released in 1982 or it won the wrestling award in 1982 i think it was also released that year or the year before that um and we're going to try and see how one of the great masters of science fiction also used long-form poetry um, to tackle common themes of science fiction. I hope that by exploring these two works, we could get to the common ground between them, through the contrast, and you know, talk about this approach to science fiction and what's similar and what's different in in how they. Um, in how they uh, kind of uh, approach this uh, format or this medium or this um, genre, uh, and that they kind of offer a sort of template for what I want to do with this um, series of episodes, which is look at how the long-form poetry format augments, um, thinks differently um, about science fiction. We'll we'll do music, but I want to end the discussion part by reading to you the last passage from Deep Will Orcadia. And I'm debating whether I want to do it in the Orcadian or the English. I think I'm going to do it in the Orcadian. So darling, all her travels, um, decides that maybe she doesn't need a home and she needs to um, keep exploring. Yeah, I'm going to do it in Orcadian because the last stanza is just absolutely beautiful in Orcadian. Um, and she thinks um, about all the possibilities that are out there in uh, space. And maybe she will jump from ship to ship. Maybe she'll plan Tai loop fi ship tai ship and quit this notion of time. Louser herself in thai flitten. Find a needle station, twatry either planets, a galaxy. Think on this, stills her skin for a peedy while. She minds on then that even a comet is rived by the weight a whit heed passes. And one heeds fire Utower the starns, the starns is tilled by their own wheel. And that wheel tilled in another wheel, till every escape is another orbit, and every orbit a neither still, and every still I makin the promise that we a till, the wind tie free. So, and then to, to translate it, at least the last passage into English, she remembers, knows, reflects, wills then that even a comet is rip break wrenched by the weight of what it passes, and when its chuck throw fired across the stars, the stars are turn twist spin whirled by their own wheel, and that wheel turn twist spin whirled in another wheel, until every escape is another orbit, and every orbit another pause lull secret silence. And every pause, lull, secret, silence, forever making the promise that with a turn, twist, spin, whirl, well, you'll reach, travel, achieve, free. I'm gonna play to you a track by a band called Ranges. Ranges are a post rock and post metal band from Montana. They also, the people in Ranges, Wait, are they from Montana? I don't want to embarrass myself because these are friends of mine. Um, they also run a label called A Thousand Arms, and by the way, Heavy Blog, yeah, Bozeman, Montana. A Heavy Blog is also on A Thousand Arms. We have our T-shirts there, and our stickers and pins and stuff like that. And these are uh, very good friends of mine at this point, or at least I consider them to be such. And they are at the forefront of what I've been documenting over the last six, seven years. As the new wave of American postdoc, we won't go into it. You can go on Heavy Blog and read about it, but suffice it to say, it's this very interesting and very good movement of using postdoc to tra- uh, to tackle things like nature, belief, um, introspection, journeys, and so on, and doing it without all of the sins of postdoc, right—the drawn-out build-ups and the tropes and so on and instead making this very present, very momentum and groove driven version of post Um they released an album i guess i should say last year december 12th of 2023 called Thirty-three, Thirty-three, and it is very very good all of their albums are very very good cardinal winds is also a high point which i absolutely adore as well as the ascensionist but this album is also fantastic and i'm going to play for you the opening track the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune this music is also very good when talking about space, um, so try to think about everything that we've discussed, the tension between language, distance, expression, semiotic fields, and then the echoing and um, very emotional music of ranges that speaks and conveys all of these ideas and emotions without lyrics so this is. The Slings and Arrows of Outrageous Fortune by Ranges. Please enjoy, and I will see you next time. Bye bye.